Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for Book 6, Chapter 13. I made a mistake. You know what I did? I thought I'd get on top of things yesterday and I recorded the podcast a little bit earlier in my evening just so I wouldn't have to do it late at night. And then I went to bed a few hours later having forgotten to upload it. So that was dumb. And then I woke up this morning at about 8am and went, oh, I just realized I never uploaded the podcast. I have to get up and do that straight away. And then I, again, forgot. So I've just sat down now, it's 8pm, and remembered, oh, I still haven't uploaded yesterday's podcast. So I've just done that now. It is available, but however, because I've only just uploaded it, uh, that's for chapter 13. You are welcome to go and discuss the chapter there, but of course there's no comments for me to read. So what I'm going to do is read last year's comments. Uh, first of all, the prompts were these. What do you think Natasha's true feelings are towards Boris? Is she serious about wanting to marry him, or is she only playfully speaking with her mother about it? I think she's for sure just play, being playful. I think she's mostly just kind of excited to be in that conversation, you know, that those kinds of conversations are happening with her as the subject. Um, though both Boris and Natasha know that a marriage between them isn't likely, they do both seem to drop everything to spend time together. Boris has spent a lot of energy setting himself up for a profitable future. So what is it about Natasha that makes him lose control in a match that does seem to line up his future plans for himself? Uh... I think I think she's just very charming. Isn't isn't that what it is? She's just very charming. Um, she's pretty and she's so kind of like free spirited. I think is a good word for Natasha, and it's appealing and endearing for all these young men who uh, get to know her. Zukov did a summary of the chapter. Let's read this. Natasha goes to visit her mother, who is praying in her bedroom, to talk about Boris. Natasha's mother seizes the opportunity to dissuade Natasha away from Boris on account that he's poor, a cousin, and that honestly Natasha doesn't really love him. She tells her daughter that Boris can't keep coming up because he's going to scare away any other legitimate and possibly rich suitors. Natasha understands, but she wants to keep flirting with Boris. As the conversation ends, Natasha mentions some weird things about Pierre being blue and red in colour, to which the Countess mentions that Natasha also flirts with Pierre. At the end of the chapter, the Countess has a private, defin definitive conversation with Boris, and he stops coming around. Analysis. I'm starting to think Natasha as this now incredibly beautiful woman who's going to get whatever she wants throughout this novel. In fact, she may end up saving the Rostovs, who are fraying apart without cash. The conversation was great, though. Countess Rostov towed the line between giving just enough to keep Natasha engaged in a conversation. She wasn't happy. Sorry, Countess Rostov um, towed the line, giving Natasha just enough to keep her engaged in the conversation she wasn't happy about, to keeping her foot down that marrying Boris isn't possible. Sorry, I read that very poorly, but I think you get the message. She did do a good balancing act. You know what I loved about this chapter was that one of her pleasures, Countess Rostova's, one of her great pleasures in life, one of the things that she will remember as one of the 
few, you know, the, the, it's in the top five of her life, is those little bedside chats that she has with Natasha, her daughter. It must be a real thing. Part of their routine is that Natasha comes in late at night when Countess Rostova is settling down for, for sleep and they have a little mother-daughter heart-to-heart. And um, it was quite playful and it did seem like very much like it was part of their routine and I thought it was really cute. Um, I also thought it was interesting, those comments that Natasha made about um, Boris being a certain colour and Pierre being a certain colour. And I thought it almost seems like, what's the word? Like, I don't think that's autistic, but there is, maybe it is. There there are, um, I don't actually know what I'm talking about, but I'm sure I've seen things about like people with autism or something like autism, maybe it's not autism, where they do categorise things by like colours, like numbers, all numbers are certain colours and and maybe even things like, you know, different people's personalities to them appear to be a vivid colour. Um, I don't know why I thought autism. It's probably because last night I started watching this show called, Aut- uh, not autism, it's called uh, Love on the Spectrum. It's on Netflix. And it was really, really entertaining. <laughs> and now I've got autism on my brain. Uh, if you haven't watched it already, I've watched only the first episode, but it was really, really entertaining. All right, guys, enough about that. I don't think Natasha is autistic, by the way. I just think it's interesting that for her, Pierre was blue and red and Boris was a grey. And she said something else describing him. I can't... I'll try to find it, actually, before we move on. Um, let's see if I can find it. Gray. Oh no, it's God's taken me out of this particular chapter. Oh no, that was a bad idea. It's, it's really, it's taken me all the way. to a whole different part of the book. Alright, my bad, my bad. I shouldn't have tried to do something fancy. Oh, golly. Okay, let me find my chapter again. Alright, anyway, forget that. Oh yeah, here, no, I found it. Here we go. Ah, he's narrow, like the dining room clock. Don't you understand? Narrow, you know, grey, light grey. Right? Wasn't that interesting? She called him narrow. And did she mean that he's skinny? Or did she mean something else about like his personality? And then she said Bezikov is blue, dark blue and red. And he is square. And does she mean his shape? Because I guess he is, probably is quite square in shape. Because he's very broad shoulders. And he's, I do think of him as a big sort of a block of a guy. Anyway. Let's not dwell on that. Let's keep moving. Chapter 14 goes like this. On the 31st of December, New Year's Eve, 1809, 10... Oh, sorry. 1809 to 1810, an old grandee of Catherine's Day was giving a ball and midnight supper. The diplomatic corps and the emperor himself were to be present. 
The Grandee's well-known mansion on the English Quay littered with innumerable lights. Police were stationed at the brightly lit entrance, which was carpeted with red bays. And not only gendarmes, but dozens of police officers, and even the police master uh, himself stood at the porch. Carriages kept driving away and fresh ones arriving with red liveried footmen and footmen in plumed hats. From the carriages emerged men wearing uniforms, stars and ribbons, while ladies in satin and ermine cautiously descended carriage steps which were let down for them with a clatter and then walked hurriedly and noiselessly over the bays at the entrance. Almost every time a new carriage drove up a whisper ran through the crowd and caps were doffed. The emperor? No, a minister, prince, ambassador. Don't you see the plumes? was whispered among the crowd. One person, better dressed than the rest, seemed to know everyone and mentioned by name the greatest dignitaries of the day. A third of the visitors had already arrived, but the Rostovs, who were to be present, were still hurrying to get dressed. There had been many discussions and preparations for this ball in the Rostov family, many fears that the invitation would not arrive, that the dresses would not be ready, or that something would not be arranged as it should be. Maya Ignatevna Poronskaya, a thin and shallow maid of honour at the court of the Dowager Empress, who was a friend and a relation of the Countess and piloted the provincial Rostovs in Petersburg High Society, was to accompany them to the ball. They were to call for her at her house in the Torida Gardens at ten o'clock, but it was already five minutes to ten and the girls were not yet dressed. Natasha was going to her first grand ball. She had got up at eight that morning and had been in a fever of excitement and activity all day. All her powers since morning had been concentrated on ensuring that they all, she, she herself, Mama and Sonia, should be as well dressed as possible. Sonia and her mother put themselves entirely in her hands. The Countess was to wear a, a claret-coloured velvet dress, and the two girls, white gals over pink silk slips, with roses on their bodices and their hair dressed a la grecu. Everything essential had already been done feet, hands, necks, and ears washed, perfumed and powdered as befits a ball. The open-work silk stockings and white satin shoes with ribbons were already on. The hairdressing was almost done. Sonia was finishing dressing, and so was the Countess, but Natasha, who had bustled about helping them all, was behind hand. She was still sitting before a looking-glass with a dressing jacket thrown over her slender shoulders. Sonia stood, ready, dressed in the middle of the room, and pressing the head of a pin till it hurt her dainty finger, was fixing on a last ribbon that squeaked as the pin went through it. "'That's not the way, that's not the way, Sonia,' cried Natasha, turning her head and clutching with both hands at her hair, which the maid, who was dressed, who was dressing it, had not time to release. "'That bow is not right. Come here.' Sonia sat down, and Natasha pinned the ribbon on differently. "'Allow me, miss, I can't do it like that,' said the maid, who was holding Natasha's hair. "'Oh, dear, well then, wait. That's right, Sonia.' "'Aren't you ready? It's nearly ten, came the Countess's voice. "'Directly, directly. And you, Mama?' "'I have only my cap to pin.' "'Don't do it without me,' called Natasha. "'You won't do it right.' "'But it's already ten. "'They had decided to be at the ball by half-past ten, and Natasha had still to get dressed, and they had to call the Torita Gardens. 
call at the Tariti Gardens. When her hair was done, Natasha, in her short petticoat from under which her dancing shoes were showed and in her mother's dressing jacket, ran up to Sonia, scrutinised her and then ran to her mother. Turning her mother's head this way and that, she fastened on her cap and hurriedly kissing her grey hair, ran back to the maids who were turning up the hem of her skirt. The cause of the delay was Natasha's skirt, which was too long. Two maids were turning up the hem and hurriedly biting off the ends of a thread. A third, was with pins in her mouth, was running about between the Countess and Sonia, and a fourth held a hole of a gossamer garment up high on one uplifted hand. Mavra, quick, darling. Give me the thimble, miss, from there. Whenever you will, be, will you be ready, asked the Count, coming to the door. Here is some scent. Peronskaya must be tired of waiting. It's ready, miss, said the maid, holding up the shortened gaze dress with two fingers and blowing and shaking something off it, as if by this to express a consciousness of the airiness and purity of what she held. Natasha began putting on the dress. In a minute, in a minute, don't come in, Papa, she cried to her father as he opened the door, speaking from under the filmy skirt which still covered her whole face. Sonia slammed the door too. A minute later, they let the Count in. He was wearing a blue swallowtail coat, shoes and stockings, and, and was perfumed, and his hair pomaded. Oh, Papa, how nice you look. Charming, cried Natasha. As she stood in the middle of the room, smoothing out the folds of the gaze. Gows, sorry. If you please, miss, allow me, said the maid, who on her knees was pulling the skirt straight and shifting the pins from one side of her mouth to the other with her tongue. Say what you like, exclaimed Sonia, in a, in a despairing voice, as she looked at Natasha. Say what you like, it's still too long. Natasha stepped back to look at herself in the pier glass. The dress was too long. Really, madame, it is not at all too long, said Mavra, crawling on her knees after her young lady. Well, if it's too long, we'll tack it up. We'll tack it up in one minute, said the resolute Dunshire, taking a needle that was stuck on the front of her little shawl, and still kneeling on the floor, set to work once more. At that moment, with soft steps, the Countess came in shyly in her cap and velvet gown. Oh, my beauty, exclaimed the Count. She looks better than any of you. He would have embraced her, but, blushing, she stepped aside, fearing to be rumpled. Mama, your cap, more to this side, said Natasha. I'll arrange it. And she rushed forward so that the maids, who were taking, tacking up her skirt, could not move fast enough, and a piece of gauze was torn off. Oh, goodness, what has happened? Really, it was not my fault. Never mind, I'll run it up. It won't show, said Dunshire. Dun Dunyasha, sorry. What a beauty, a very queen, said the nurse as she came to the door. And Sonia, they are lovely. At a quarter past ten, they all, they at last got into the carriages and started, but they had still to call at the Torita Gardens. Peronskaya was quite ready. In spite of her age and plainness, she had gone through the same process as the Rostovs, but with less flurry, for to her it was a matter of routine. Her ugly old body was washed, perfumed and powdered in just the same way. She had washed behind her ears just as carefully, and when she entered her drawing room in her yellow dress, wearing her badge as maid of honour, her old lady's maid was as full of rapturous admiration as the Rostov's servants had been. 
She praised the Rostov's toilets. They praised her taste in toilet. And at 11 o'clock, careful of their coifers and dresses, they settled themselves in their carriages and drove off. All right, there we go. That's chapter 14 for you. Up to date. We're all up to date. Very good. Have your say on the subreddit. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow.